Well, you don't know how blessed you are to be at the second service today. I apparently went a little long the first service. And my wife said that, as a, as a good first lady should, she said, that was a good sermon, but you need to tighten it up for the next service. So you, you will be the benefactors of that. Um, this past Friday, uh, we were able to take our kids to the Denver uh, Museum of Nature and Science, and they were having the, 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 the uh, Da Vinci uh, exhibit going on there, and we had a blast. It was awesome. Uh, our children loved looking at all of the creations that Da Vinci uh, you know, had designed, and my son loved the cannons and the machine guns and all of those things. Uh, there was also a, a portion of the exhibit that was all art, and many of you know that I have a great love of art. I'm, I'm not an artist myself, but I appreciate uh, those who are artists. And, you know, from time to time, I'm, I'm going to be sharing uh, some pieces of art with you, probably more than time to time, actually. And if you get sick of it, please please feel free to tell Pastor Drew. And, and um, uh, he's used to getting complaints about me, so that'll be good. It's only been four weeks, you know. Uh, the uh, painting that's up on your screen today, uh, as we prepare to look at our story, by the way, we're looking at John chapter 8. <clears throat> this story in John is, the, is often called the story of the woman caught in adultery. The, and it's the final uh, uh, sermon in our series, Encounters with Jesus. And uh, it, it is, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting text. Um, the, uh, first of all, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to John chapter 8, one of the things that you'll probably notice is, is that if it is in your Bible, it's got little brackets around it. And that is to let you know <clears throat> that this story is not in the oldest copies of the scriptures that we have. Um, so scholars you know, debate this, and pretty much scholars all across the spectrum agree that this story was not in the original texts of the Bible. But you know, as early as the 6th century and the 500s, we have other writings by other folks that didn't make it into your Bible that, that refer back to this story. So we know that it was an important story in the life of the church, at least in the you know, uh, uh, second couple of hundred years after Christianity became legal uh, in the Roman Empire. And now it's, uh, at the time, uh, the, 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 the one source that we have from a guy named Gregory uh, who was a bishop in Rome, uh, although the capital city of the Roman Empire had already moved at that point, and the Eastern Roman Empire is now the predominant empire of the world. We don't learn a lot about that in, West, in the Western world. I don't know why, particularly in Western Christianity, but you know, for, for centuries, uh, the, the Christian Rome that we normally think of, the Christian Empire, wasn't in the city of Rome. It was in what was called Constantinople or ancient city of Byzantium. Today it's called Istanbul, Turkey. But uh, Gregory is a bishop in Rome, the city of Rome, where the Roman Empire is. And, and he's a fairly important guy. Matter of fact, he's the guy that sent missionaries to the British Isles. And so those of you who are of uh, Scott or Irish or British ancestry, you can thank Gregory the Great because your forebears are the ones who preach the gospel uh, uh, the, the, your forebears were the ones to whom the gospel was preached uh, by missionaries sent to the British Isles by Gregory the Great. Um, but this story has become a, a rather significant story in Christian thinking. And this painting that's up on the screen right now is called The Woman Caught in Adultery. It's a Renaissance painting by Rembrandt. And uh, 
it's normally not this pretty, but, but Brent has fixed it so that you guys can see it better, and I'm grateful for him and for his talents. But if you ever see it in real life, it is awe-inspiring. The central figure is Jesus, and we know that because he stands like in the painting like six foot six. He's huge. He, he, he towers over all the other people in the painting. And we know that Jesus was probably not six foot six, but Jesus is the central figure here. And uh, there's other paintings that occur. There's, uh, this is a, a Baroque painting that was common in Italy. Uh, the first service, no one recognizes. You may not have recognized it, but I want you to pay attention to it. This painting is used more than many other paintings of that Baroque period in social media memes. And I didn't tell the first service what the meme, what the most common... Has any of you seen this? Raising your hands? Okay, well, this totally bombed, I guess. <laughs> but uh, the meme that I see all the time is, is uh, what you look like when you're trying to convince uh, the police that your friends aren't really drunk. And <laughs> that's the meme that goes with this painting. I can say that at this service, right? Just, just not the other service. But anyway, this is a, a, a wonderful uh, painting. This is perhaps better known. Uh, this is a, a painting by a guy named Bruegel the Elder. Uh, why is this painting so, so interesting in this story? Because there's a, when, when, when I read the story here in a little bit, you'll know that Jesus bends down and writes something in the, in the earth, in, in, the, in the dust. And the Bible doesn't say what he wrote, but Bruegel the Elder here, the painter is named Bruegel, he actually, you can't see it, but he records what Jesus wrote. He, he guesses what Jesus wrote, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. And his son, whose name is, well, Bruegel the Younger, you know, it's not an ingenious name, he, he does the same painting. He honors his dad by doing the same painting, gives it more color, more vibrancy, but he also writes the same thing. Jesus writes the same thing according to Bruegel the Younger, that Bruegel the Elder said Jesus wrote. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, this is all nice. Why is he always dealing with European uh, paintings and that sort of thing? And, uh, you know, maybe it's the issue with, with white Europeans and all that stuff. But we've found that this topic is, is significant to other cultures as well. As a matter of fact, after French missionaries <clears throat> had evangelized what is today Cameroon in Africa, and <clears throat> they returned to establish a mission there, this painting was found there. We don't know who painted it. It's anonymous. Uh, but apparently, uh, the earliest converts in Cameroon, this story really took heart. It was an important part of their story, so much so that, that they depicted Jesus and the disciples and, and the Pharisees and scribes in, in, in their own traditional dress at the time. So, so they're bringing that story of Jesus into their own contemporary experience in North Cameroon, and I, I love this painting, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about why I love this and, and some of the others, but this is a more modern painting, a 20th century painting, and uh, by a, a female artist named Swindle, and, and what, what, what you see is a little different from this painting that you saw in the others, and I won't ask questions, we won't pretend this is you know, a lecture hall in college, is, is that in all the other paintings, Jesus is the central figure. Rembrandt, he's the tallest. And Bruegel the Elder and Bruegel the Younger, you know, he's the one that is bowing down, the center of the picture. And the painting by uh, the, uh, uh, the Cameroon painting, he's in red. He's the brightest, most brightly dressed person. But in this painting, there's actually two characters here that are prominent, right? 
Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Let's read the text from John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. And once more he went down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessing and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, let's, inter- let's introduce ourselves to these people, first of all, before we get uh, further into the story. We, we, we have the accusers, don't we? And the Bible says that the accusers are the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes are an interesting group of people in the ancient world. These are, they started out simply as copyists. These are people who copied the law, the law of Moses. They copied it over and over and over and over again to, to give to people. And every community had a scribe. But because they copied it over and over and over and over again, they really became experts at the law. They became experts at the law. Now, as we uh, go through various sermons, I'm want, I hope, to always give you just little bits of encouragement when you're witnessing to folks, when you're encountering, when you're offering an apologetic, not to say I'm sorry, but a proof with wisdom, uh, with words, a defense with words, an apology. That's a, with words is what it literally means. And because people always come to you and they, they say, well, I can't believe that the Bible would say such and such. Isn't it horrible that the Bible uh, says that uh, God wants every man, woman, and child to be killed whenever uh, a, a war is fought. Which, incidentally, is not what the Bible says, by the way. As a matter of fact, I remember in college in a philosophy class, one of the uh, students in the philosophy class began slamming uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian heritage and Judeo-Christian tradition and saying, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. And I, I, I interrupted and I said, where does the Bible say those things? And she said, well, I don't know where the Bible says it. Well, well until you know where the Bible says it, <laughs> would you please not say anything? Now, if that happened today, I'm much nicer today than I was when I was in my early 20s, and I wouldn't have been so rude and arrogant. But you're going to encounter people 
who are going to say to you, doesn't the Bible say such and such? Or because the Bible says such and such, you have to defend why I should believe in God or why I should hear the Christian story. Now, the scribes didn't have to worry about that. You know why? Because they knew their Bibles. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go and copy the Bible over and over and over again. Although, if you want to, you can. It won't hurt you. But we become experts by being familiar with things. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be a Ph.D. theologian or teach in a university. But if you know the Bible, you'll become an expert in the Bible. And, and for your friends, you may be the only expert they ever meet. For your family, you may be the only expert they ever meet. And like the scribes, even though they're not necessarily the good guys in the story, they knew their Bible. And because they knew their Bible, they were considered experts in the law. It was a, it was a trade. It, it was something that every village had. But there's also these Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are a little different than scribes. First of all, Pharisees are actually a party, not the kind of party that you celebrate with cake and ice cream, but like a political party, although I don't necessarily want to make the comparisons. But there were two main parties in the ancient world during the time of Jesus, the Sadducees and the <coughs> Pharisees. Maybe you could think of it like you know, the Democrats and Republicans or the Libertarians and the Green Party, but but just understand it not in terms of what they believe that's similar, but that there were two main parties that folks generally fell in line with. Now, everybody always asks me when I talk about Pharisees and Sadducees, they'll say, well, first of all, what did they believe? And second of all, which ones were the conservatives and which ones were the liberals? Because that's the question everybody wants answered nowadays, right? And well, it depends. It depends on the issue. You know, the, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, which the Sunday school teacher would tell you that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. <laughs> I'm just trying to give you some helps here. Where the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Another, but that wasn't the biggest thing. The biggest thing was is that the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of what we know to be the Old Testament were inspired. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were the only ones inspired. All the other books were not inspired. The Pharisees believed that all of the other books were inspired as well. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. For the most part, the parts of your Bible that we call the Old Testament, the Pharisees would have said all that is inspired. The Sadducees would not have believed that. The Pharisees, this party, they, 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 to, to their credit, they really loved the law. They believed that the law was, was, was a gift, was valuable. That's not foreign to Christian tradition. Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, said the law is beautiful. Every sermon should have law, but also grace. And so it's, it's not that we're upset with the Pharisees because they believe the law. I don't know if you're upset with the Pharisees to begin with. But the, the Pharisees did something with the law that is a little strange to our modern sensibilities, is that they figured out ways to help you follow the law. So, for example, the law says that you're not to work on the Sabbath. And that's what the Sadducees would say. Don't work on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees would say, now that's not very nice. And so they would think up ways to help you not work on the Sabbath. So, therefore, you could only walk so many miles. You couldn't make a fire. So you started building fires on Friday night, the, the, the Shabbat candle, the Sabbath candle, so that the fire would already be built, so you could follow the law. But that's not, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you can't build a fire on the Sabbath. That's just what the Pharisees made up and became a part of the over 600 laws that became 
integral and essential in the early Jews and, and to some even to this day. The Pharisees, the word means separated, those who are separated. These guys were considered rock stars of the ancient world. I know that's hard to believe, but I mean, when a Sadducee would come to town, no one would come listen to him preach. But when the Pharisee came to town, the whole town came out to hear Pharisee. Why? I don't know. Maybe it was because they were always deciding who was out. They preached about who was bad, who was wrong, how you were messing up. People like to hear that for some reason, especially if you're preaching about everybody else but you. You know, my dad always said the mark of a great preacher is that every person thinks that you're preaching against everybody else but them. You know, even though that sounds horrible and hateful, there's a part of it that's true. None of us like to be confronted with our own sin, but oh, it's pretty easy for us to pay attention to everyone else's sins. And Pharisees were masters at this. And these Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Now, this is a clip from a recent movie that was made about the life of Jesus. And this is the scene that was uh, of John uh, chapter 8, where the woman was caught in adultery. I, I, I like this. There are some paintings that I wanted to show you that, well, probably aren't PG or PG-13. I mean, just think about the story in a second. If the woman was caught in adultery and grabbed by these men and taken before Jesus, taken down to the temple and thrown before the teacher, I'm sure they didn't let her, you know, get ready. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, picture, if you will, somebody rushing through the doors here and and the deacons and elders grabbing this woman whom they have caught and throwing her down in front of the communion table for her to be judged. That's a horrific scene, a horrific image. What about this woman? This woman who is caught in adultery. Well, they say this. Teacher, the woman has been caught in adultery. The law of Moses says that such women are to be stoned. Remember earlier when I said that it's important to know your Bible? Here's an example of why it's important for you to know your Bible. Because the Pharisees are wrong. That's not what the law of Moses says. And I just happen to have it marked in my Bible. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 20, excuse me, in verse 10, you'll see what the law says. Now before you read this, I see some of you are reading it. Before you read it, What do you think the most common objection by a non-believer would be when they heard this story? They brought the woman who was caught in adultery, and she is to be stoned. What do you think a non-believer would say? Let's pretend this is Sunday school class. What? Where's the guy? Who said that? Raise your hand high and proud. That's right. Where is the guy? That ain't right. Takes two to what? That's exactly right. I can't follow the Bible when the Bible says that the woman's supposed to be punished but not the man. You know the problem with that? That's not what the Bible says. Let me read to you what the Bible says. Verse 10 of chapter 20. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. At least the Bible is an equal opportunity punisher. 
That fits at least our semblance and understanding of justice, doesn't it? And the non-believer would say, well, that's just one verse in the Bible. What about all the other verses in the Bible that talk about adultery? Well, that would be Deuteronomy chapter 22. But I happen to have marked as well. And Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22, so that's easy. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both, there's that word again, both of them shall die. The man who lay with a woman and the woman. So what's the first thing the Pharisees have done that's not according to the law of Moses? They have not drugged with him the man who was also involved in the affair. Don't go acting like you're lovers of the law when you conveniently only apply the law to certain groups of people. Here's the other problem. Is what do the Pharisees say should be the penalty? She should be what? Stoned. Did we see that in Leviticus? No. Did we see that in Deuteronomy? No. It says they should be put to death, but it does not delineate that the method of execution is stoning. They added that in. One of the more horrific ways to be put to death for violating certain laws in the law of Moses is to stone, unless a stone were to you know, perhaps luckily hit your head and knock you out. But literally, the way you're stoned to death is, is that people pelt you with stones until you're dead. It's a horrible way to die. <clears throat> well, the Bible must say something about being stoned to death. Well, it does. It's in the following verse. It says this. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then she shall bring them out of the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death. So you can stone adulterers to death, but it has to be under this case. It has to be that the woman was engaged and she went to the city and had the affair. Then both of them are stoned to death. Now, here's what's really cool. If the woman's engaged and this exchange, this interchange between the two of them happens outside of the city, only the man is stoned to death, not the woman. I see some women taking notes. Now, why is that the case? Well, because the law of Moses gives the woman the benefit of the doubt. The law of Moses says that if the woman is out outside of the city where no one can hear her, then she probably would have cried for help. And so if it's discovered that this thing happens, then only the man is put to death. Whereas in the city, she could have screamed. And you know, cities are tight-knit, and it's not like cities today, or suburbs today. It's tight-knit. Somebody would have heard her scream, and they would have come to her defense. And in that case, if no one heard her scream, she was obviously a willing partner in the whole thing, and therefore she should suffer the penalty too. But if it happened outside of the city, we give the woman uh, the benefit of the doubt. This happens again and comes up again over and over, in the, and I'm not going to get it, but even in the prophet Ezekiel, it says that there is coming a day when those kinds of sins, the sins of adultery, that God is going to judge the men harsher than the women. How about that? Guys, you have some friends out there that you know stepped out on their wives. You can tell them, you better be careful. The Bible says that you're going to be judged more harshly than the woman. It kind of changes the whole sense of the story now that these Pharisees, these scribes, drag this woman, throw her at the feet of Jesus, and try to trick him. 
For if he says, yes, she must be stoned, then he's in trouble with the Romans. And if, she, and if he says she should not be stoned, then he's in trouble with those who love the law of Moses. But Jesus didn't do any of those things. I wonder why. You know, I guess that's my weakness. Because if I had been there and the Pharisees and the scribes had come to me and said that, I would have said, now, fellas, y'all don't know your Bibles real well. It's real easy to pervert that Bible for your goals, but let's go look at what the Bible really says. And what would have happened if I had been there is we would have engaged in this great legal and theological debate with the Pharisees and the scribes about how they're misusing Scripture. All the while, there's a woman, half-clothed, lying in the street, with a sense of utter shame, regret, assuming she's guilty. Well, who's the judge? Well, the judge is the teacher. Jesus. And see, Jesus, in the first part of John, in John chapter 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into existence through the Word. And just like on one particular day, the word Jesus said to my mother and to her body, Isaac William Nicholson will come into existence now. So too did the word Jesus speak this woman into existence. He knew her heart. He knew her mind. He knew her gifts and he knew her failures. He knew her successes. He knew who she was. And what's so powerful about this to me is is that Jesus cared more about the individual than he did showing these Pharisees and scribes how wrong they were. What I also love about this is this is a story of redemption, not only for the woman, but for the Pharisees and the scribes as well. Why? Why? Because Jesus gets down and he writes on the dust of the earth. I wonder what he wrote. Brugel the elder and Brugel the younger wondered what he wrote. And they said that he wrote, he who is without sin cast the first stone. I don't think that's what Jesus wrote. Let's step back a little bit and look at the story bigger. Just two chapters prior to this, beginning in about chapter 6, chapter 7, we find that Jesus and the disciples have just finished celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. And there was a tradition that had developed in the ancient world during the Feast of Tabernacles that was really an invention of the Pharisees. Mm. Y'all better buckle up and hold on tight because King Jesus is about to put some people in their place. You see, the Sadducees hated this tradition. Why? Because it added to Scripture. And Scripture just said that the Feast of Tabernacles was to be celebrated this way. But the Pharisees had added some other stuff. Beautiful stuff, 
but some other stuff. And this was the tradition. What would happen is, is that those who could afford it, of course, because they had to bring the better sacrifice because you had to get the high priest to do this, and the high priest would receive the sacrifice from the person who is confessing their sins, and the priest would do this. He'd get down on his knees, and he would write the name of the sinner in the dust on the temple floor. He'd write their name down there. And then, after the sacrifice was offered, they'd go to a pool just outside of the temple. This pool comes up over and over again in the New Testament. And they'd get a huge jug, and they'd pick that uh, uh, a jug full of water, and they'd bring it back to the temple floor, and they'd throw the water on the temple floor, washing away the name. It was a beautiful imagery that God, the living water, washes away the sin What's Jesus called in the Gospel of John? One of the designations of Jesus. What, what did he say to the woman at the well? That he offers the water of eternal life, doesn't he? He is the living water. He is the living I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if Jesus was writing the name of all of those Pharisees and those scribes in the dust of the earth. Maybe he was writing the name of the woman and the dust of the earth. One scholar says that he was writing the sins of the Pharisees and scribes and the dust of the earth. All I know is this, is that act was profound. Maybe they, as good Pharisees, who believed in Jeremiah, one of the prophets, as well as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, maybe they remembered that verse from Jeremiah. All who forsake the Lord shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now, let me, let me share this with you. In the church, we talk a lot about grace and mercy. We throw those, that phrase around like candy sometimes, like candy at a Christmas parade. What does mercy and grace really mean? Well, mercy literally means God does not give us what we deserve. God does not give us what we deserve. The Bible says that when God created the world, he created it perfect and beautiful. Chapter 1, Genesis. The end of chapter 2 in Genesis, we see that that gift of free will that God gave to humanity, humanity uses for its own idolatry and its own selfish ends. And from that point on, God has been calling the world back into relationship with himself, calling you and I back into relationship with himself. Because the truth is, is that now, because of the brokenness of the world, we all stand in a state of sin, of brokenness, of separation from God. And the Bible says that those who stand separated from God, this is hard, deserve to die. As a matter of fact, if you remember in the book of Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But do you also remember that when God discovers that they have eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, does he kill them? No. They don't die. Remember, too, that he clothes them with the skin of an animal, the foreshadowing of the sacrificial system, because something had to die. It just wasn't them. 
And see, mercy is that God does not give us what we deserve. We deserve punishment. But God doesn't give us that. That's mercy. Grace is God does not, God gives us what we do not deserve. God gives us what we don't deserve. The God who wants to shower us with his blessing, who wants to love us, who wants to bring us into the fullness of life, who wants to give us all that is his. The God who says to us, you're my sons and daughters now. The God who says, you are princesses and princesses in my kingdom. That's the grace of God. And that woman in her shame, and that woman in her regret, You know what I find so astonishing in this? Now listen, I'm almost done. Yeah, I told the first service that too. I'm almost done. Throughout the whole of the New Testament, this is how it works. You and I say we're sorry and ask God to forgive us. Or, if you want to even be more gracious, we have to receive the gift that God gives us. That is, is that uh, repentance comes before forgiveness. That's what the New Testament says. Every other Sunday I'm at this pulpit, I'm going to preach that, okay? Except this Sunday. Uh-oh, he's a done, only four weeks. We knew he was a heretic. Because that's not how it happens here. How it happens here is Jesus gives to her grace and mercy before she repents. He gets down and he says to her, Rise, my daughter. Stand in my grace and my mercy. And it was that act that led her to repentance. And he says to her, Go. And sin no more. Now listen. Remember earlier I told you that this was a real powerful painting because of a guy named Gregory who was Bishop of Rome. He identifies who this woman is. Now modern day scholars disagree with him. But he lived closer to the event than I did. Because he said that this woman is none other than Mary Magdalene. I don't know if that's true or not. But if it is, here's how that encounter with Jesus ended. The woman, half clothed, dirty and bloody in her shame and in her regret, becomes one of the women that stands at the cross while all the men fled. One of the women who went to his tomb, one of the women who understood how powerful God's grace and mercy really is. In just a few minutes, we're going to come to this table to receive that which reminds us that God doesn't give us what we do deserve and gives us generously that which we do not deserve. 
Jesus is speaking to your heart. I pray that after the service you'll meet with an elder or whomever, me or one of the other pastors, and share that moment with us so we can pray with you as you receive that unmerited grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, by your mercy and by your grace, we have been redeemed. And you have made us beloved children in the family of God. Lord, we honor this woman whom Jesus forgave and raised to a new life. And we pray, whether our hearts are open and ready or whether they're hard and our minds are still questioning, that you'll meet us where we are, that you'll give us what we need, that our lives may be lives of repentance and new life. In Jesus' name, amen.